Welcome everyone to our first podcast and today for our first kind of published podcast we're going to be interviewing Robin Frank, our Vice President of Diversity and General Counsel. Robin came on board about two and a half, three years ago and really just turned everything around and took our content and conferences to the next level. And we thought it would be fun to start off with putting a little background to Robin and having everyone learn and understand her journey, how she came from New York City to to um, a career in law and how she became a GC uh, at an energy company and then came to be at Centerforce. And then we get into the themes of the conference and, and what both of us have actually learned and picked up on and some key insights into kind of some of the profound elements of the topics and the discussions that will create the most amount of change. Everything from unconscious bias to mentorship to self-advocacy, the importance of sponsorship. And it's a fascinating, fun discussion. And I hope you can hear kind of the, the fun and, and, and the sort of uh, unique dynamic that Robert and I have together. So please enjoy this podcast and we hope that it inspires you, that you can benchmark what you're doing and that you, you can take some real actionable items from all of the podcasts that we're going to be publishing once or twice a week in the, the coming months. So thank you all for your support and enjoy the, enjoy the podcast. We are super lucky today in that I managed to convince our VP of Diversity and GC, Robin Frank, to join us and be our first podcast uh, that we're going to publish. So, Robin, welcome. Well, thank you, Steve. I'm very honored to be selected for this. And thank you for the compliments. Well, you know, thank me at the end of the podcast. You <laughs> <laughs> break me over the cold. Okay. All right. So, uh, some of your journey, you know, I know about and some I don't. And so what I th thought we'd do, as we always do, is <clears throat> start off with your your journey, where you came from, <clears throat> where you got to where you are today. And then um, I thought it'd be really interesting, as we've done now done a lot of the Women, Diversity and Change conferences together, it'd be great to get your take on what you've learned um, and what, what come out, what trends have come out. And I can share mine because uh, I was crazy enough to moderate a lot of them before I managed to twist your arm or you twisted my arm or something in between uh, joining Centerforce. So where, where, where are you, uh, where are you from? The only, I, one thing I do know about your upbringing, you like fine dining, but other than that, where, <laughs> where are you from? <laughs> Born and raised in New York city. Where, where did you go? Where did you go to college? I went to Ohio State, the Ohio State University. All right. So you've told me a little bit about that, but I know being Jewish in, in the 70s, living in New York, is a, it's a fairly safe, safe place to be Jewish. Um, but what was your experience being Jewish going to Ohio State then? Well, it was pr pretty crazy. I mean, first of all, people might wonder how a Jewish New Yorker ended up at Ohio State. And all I can say is it was a family school. My father, I had mentioned he was in business with his brother, and he had three sons who all went there. Not sure how. Um, and I wanted to go where my cousins were. So it was not an academic decision. Neither of my parents were college graduates. So they, of course, wanted me to go to college, but they really didn't know anything about coaching me or steering me to the right school so it was always decided I'd go to Ohio State. And frankly, it was mind blowing. Um, well, first of all, I was told to join the quote unquote Jewish dorm. So there's actually a Jewish dorm. The Jewish people knew that they wanted to be in Taylor Tower, which was nicknamed Taylor Temple. Um, but still, there was a, such a mix of people from all over the country. And one of my roommates was grew up on a potato farm. So I did have one Jewish roommate, but it was strictly I don't know fate because everyone else I became friendly with was with, there were no no Jewish people. Um, I did join a Jewish sorority, but only because it was an option of being completely out of it or completely in it. I didn't like either option, but I felt that I had to at least join the Jewish sorority. So strange people. Many people had never seen a Jew before. I actually have people. Of course, Jewish people look so different to everyone else. Well, right? they wanted to know where my horns were and where my tail was. I know that's hard to believe, but this was the 70s. And a lot of these kids, I mean, they didn't even mean anything mean by it. No one was ever mean. No one ever called me a dirty Jew or a kike or anything like that. Why the law? Why law school? 
So that was part of my upbringing and being a quote unquote nice Jewish girl. I wanted to make my parents proud. And again, they could not give me any advice in terms of career or academics. My mother was your typical Jewish mother. She just wanted me to get married. I mean, so I wanted to pick something that would make them happy, to be completely honest. And I excelled in a constitutional law class in high school. I was a good student. And my teacher encouraged me. And I thought, okay, I'm good at this. My parents will be happy. I'll make my mother happy. I'll meet a lawyer. <laughs> but anyway, that's that's how I kind of fell into it. Didn't give and, it a lot And of you fun. went straight from college to law school straight away? I didn't want to. I wanted to take a break and work. But my mother told me that I had to go right to law school or they wouldn't support me. I was really a product of my upbringing. It's embarrassing to say, but in all candor, I was a good Jewish girl. I didn't want to upset anybody. So I did what she told me to do. But Boy, how I, things have changed, Robin. Boy, have things changed. There's a big, <laughs> big, big backlash, and you've been there. Okay. <laughs> I'm not that person anymore. Good. I think we're all better for it. Um, so in law school, did you start to get a sense that you might be being treated different because you were a, a woman? No, I never felt it in law school. I, I felt it after I graduated and got into the workforce, but in law school, I, I just felt like I was one of the gang. Yeah, the, that's what we, we've heard now. Um, we've heard that a lot. Like, you know, um, I, think, I think people of color feel it, but I don't think, you know, the gender, you know, the gender, you know, divide, there they didn't seem to be, you know, up until they leave, people leave law school. What, what, where did you go after law school? Did you go to a law firm? Did you go in-house? What did you I do? went to a law firm and... I see the thing is I was a little bit unconscious. I didn't now I look back and I cringe. But at the time I accepted the fact that I couldn't wear pants to court. I was in litigation. I accepted the fact that the it was a man's world, that the women were treated differently, that the men smoked cigars and that like, could smoke cigars in the hallway in the courts at that time. Um, and just the way the partners treated me, I, again, it's, I cringe now thinking about it, but I felt that that was the way it was. I didn't expect anything different. I started with another associate and we were both female. So it wasn't like I was comparing how they were treating me as to how they were treating my male counterpart. We were both women. But when I think back now, um, just again, the way I was spoken to, the honey, sweetheart, darling, uh, the way it was in court, the fact that it was really 90% male judges. I, I just now I think back and I see it. But honestly, I, I felt more I think I felt less than because I felt like I had to keep proving myself as the most junior person at the firm. And unfortunately, they were not very nurturing in any way to me and the other woman who, who's now, by, by the way, my best friend. We became best friends as a result of that shared trauma. Um, but we literally used to have to run and hide and sneak in two different directions to the ladies' room to, to kind of blow off steam. It was, we were, it, it was, it was rough. And how long did you last there? Under a year. <laughs> Under a year. But the reason was, and Steve, this is going to be my big reveal is because I got really, really sick. I think all the stress I ended up with ulcerative colitis and I ended up in the hospital for a really long time. And uh, it that has shadowed my life. It was bad. And it was a long time until I was able to recover. Why did you get so stressed out? What was it about the job? I, I think it was the shock of going from, regardless of any challenges I had in life, I was a very loved child. I was always had great friends. I was a good student in college and law school. I was popular. And then all of a sudden I was thrust into this world completely unprepared where we were expected to be in the office at eight, not leaving at six was leaving early, a very demanding court schedule, constantly running. And in those days, you know, there were no cell phones or anything and there were no briefcases on rollers. You're running with these heavy bags. And I just think that the physical demands of the job and the mental sort of squeezing my personal life into such a tight, tight space. And I was still young and I still wanted to go out at night and have friends. I, I just think it just all caught, caught up with me and I think my body just crashed. And so after you recovered, what, what did you do then? So that associate I mentioned, she and I started our own practice together. She left the firm also, and we actually started a little law firm. 
And um, we, that was really great. That was a great time for us. We did, I think we rose from the ashes. Okay. What sort of law was it? What, what, what? Well, what we did was we had this brilliant idea that nobody was doing, and now everybody's doing it, which was the idea to do per diem work for other big law firms. We had a lot of contacts because of, you know, what we were doing for the year that we were doing it. And she actually stayed on longer than me. Um, and we just contacted everybody we knew and we said we'll cover every single court case that they couldn't cover. And the two of us ran around the five boroughs, including Staten Island, which I had never been to before. And um, yeah, it was physically demanding, but I was doing my own thing. I was my own boss. I was making my own schedule. Um, we also, there was a law firm down the hall that did bankruptcy work and I took on all their court appearances and I learned about bankruptcy law. And it was it was just a, a wonderful, wonderful thing to be able to make that happen. So how long did that? That I mean, my God, that sounds like a great business. How long did you do it that? Was, it was a lot of years. I can't remember exactly how many, but um, the reason we ended up uh, breaking apart was because she was she ended up going to a divorce and she needed to, honestly, Steve, my memory, oh my God, can't remember, but... On a side note, I happened to fall in love with a bankruptcy lawyer down the hall, and we ended up getting married. So I went and joined his firm. That was my first husband. So I ended up becoming a partner with him and running the bankrupt. He had a bankruptcy and matrimonial practice, and I just sort of slid into that, and I did that for a very long time. And I became the mat. We grew the we grew the business. I became the managing attorney. But that's when I learned that I actually liked the business aspect better than the legal aspect because I started to bring in the business. I became a rainmaker. I did all the intakes and, and eventually started farming out the legal work to the associates and not running and doing all those court appearances myself. Um, and I found that I really liked that much more. So, and that kind of brought me into doing legal recruiting, which I did for five years because we got divorced. And, um, and by the way, that laid the groundwork for Center Force because I learned so much that I never would have known about different law firms and in-house counsel and, big, big companies and financial institutions. And, um, you know, it was, it was really good for me. And, and as you know, and I don't know if I should keep going on and on, eventually I remarried very happily, the love of my life. Um, and one of his clients was very impressed with me and hired me to become his general counsel when he was growing his um, energy company, which was really taking off. And that was in the 2000s. And that's, that's when you spoke at one of our events, right? Mm -hmm. I was there for 10 years. Just Robin Frank asking me and grilling me what's going on, how does this work, what happens, um, right? Well, that was what, so I spent 10 years totally re-immersed in the law after all that sort of fun, cool business stuff. I got way back into that legal mindset on a very high level because I was general counsel and it was energy and I was running to Albany and running a team and regulatory work and compliance. And um, so I kind of lost my mind a little bit. So when I showed up at an event like yours, I was like, who, what, where, what, what, what's happening? I uh, <laughs> I didn't get out that much. So that's kind of. Yes, I could tell. So Robin calls me and she's like, you know, talking and asking me lots of questions and goes through everything and seems very anxious. And then she shows up late with a backpack on. But I, was, I wasn't late for my panel. No, you weren't late for your panel, but you came in acting like you were late, like you was all stressed <laughs> out. Your backpack, you dumped everything on the table, <laughs> and then, uh, and then, and then you say, "Don't ask me, don't ask me first question." So I made her sit next to me, and of course, I asked her the first question. <laughs> right? Yes, that's right. Yeah, that was hilarious, and uh, and she didn't panic. She thought it was kind of funny at the same time. I think. So um, what was your experience at that event? Because I think you were sort of expecting a generic um, a generic conference, right? And it was being moderated by me at the time, right? And uh, it was, um, I think you got a lot of outreach from people from that conference and you didn't even stay for the whole day, did you, Robin? What, mm -hmm. uh, what no. you asked your speakers now to do you, that you did, you, you dined and dashed. I think you probably left after lunch knowing you. I did exactly what I t tell people not to do. <laughs> Well, first of all, let me just say that I once again had that weird experience when I was general counsel of being the other because I was the only woman on a very white male executive team. And crazily enough, none of them even had working wives, which 
their perspective was skewered. Um, it was, I, listen, I was very grateful for the opportunity and it was interesting work and it was very lucrative. And listen, I lasted 10 years, but I was struggling. And when I came to your event, knowing nothing except that I wanted to speak about self-advocacy because I thought I had something to say, I was really blown away. First of all, I didn't realize how common my problem was. I didn't realize that there was going to be a room full of hundreds of really smart women who were having the same issues. And I found that it was really great to not just sort of vent, but really work towards what can we do about it and exchange ideas. And, um, and then it turned out that I really liked being in front of a hundred people talking about myself. <laughs> and then there's, there's the, the, uh, the origin story of how I got started with you, Stephen. I know we totally disagree on, on that. So. No, I mean, I don't think we disagree, Robin. I, I think you just misconstrued sort of what, what I said. You called me up weirdly. I mean, I didn't really, you know, we, you spoke. I thought you were a character. Didn't really think about you again. And you called me up and you said, it's Robin Frank. And I'm like, oh, okay. All right. <laughs> Pretended like I sort of remembered you. And then you started, you go in and you said something nice about the conference and you got a lot out of it. And do you know anyone do you know anyone who's looking for a job? And all, all I said is, are you asking me for a job? That's what you said. That's what I said to you. That is definitely not the way I remember the conversation. They said, are you asking me for a job? Because it's I said, I said, I'd like to talk to you about opportunities in your, in, the, in your area. I'm very interested in. Yeah, I know, but you said, I said, that then you and said, you said asking me for a job. Uh, uh, you said, well, maybe we should talk about you working for me is what you said. Yeah, well, of course. <laughs> We're never going to agree. So, no one. We have no witnesses, Steve. So it's That's all right. know. sounds like one of our one-on-ones, Robin. You know, just from asking you sometimes to do legal work, it's not that you you know you go yippee. There is kind of a deep sigh, like oh god, Steve's asking me for a document or something like that. But I used to tell me stories that you 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 know you weren't into the work at all, right? I didn't dislike the work. What I disliked was the way. I was treated, to be honest, not by my team. There were a lot of wonderful people there, but unfortunately there were certain other people there who really were very disrespectful in their languaging and the way they spoke. And if I pointed it out in a very neutral sort of, that's not really appropriate, politically correct, which I know people don't like that term, but I, it just, it wasn't the way you treat a professional. I didn't feel I was being given the respect that my office and my title and the work that I was doing, good work for 10 years deserved. And it was hurtful. And when I tried to explain that in a very unemotional way, I was either told I was being emotional or I had, you know, eye rolling. And because there was no, our HR was outsourced when I did speak to them, of course, they're in the pocket of the CEO and they don't want to, that's who's paying them. So it's just very, it was hard. So what I, the way I would get, get it all out would be, I'd pull into the garage before I went into the house. And so I wouldn't scare my husband and children and just scream and then grab the wine bottle off the refrigerator door, which was always there waiting for me. And I'm not really a big drinker, but I drank a lot of wine during those 10 years. Um, but it wasn't so much the work, it was the atmosphere. But look, I found a way. I was there 10 years. I found a way to make it work. You know, let, let's, let's change gears now, I think. You know, as you think about hearing, doing all of the prep calls, doing the research, but actually engaging with the audience, why don't we share our experiences and, and what some of the trends that you've heard um, and, and some of the things that you, you that have come up, maybe that get get kind of swept under the rug, doesn't don't get talked about enough. Maybe are difficult to talk about. But what 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 are some of the trends and insights that you've gathered from the from the kind of moderating and running the conferences now for a couple of years? Well, I think it first starts with my own personal ed education. There was so much I didn't know, and I'm so grateful. Mm -hmm to all our speakers who have been so candid and open. Um, you know, I almost feel now that I'm sitting where I'm sitting that to even whine in any way about my feelings or my problems when I was, you know, working as a privileged white woman, it almost makes me cringe a little bit. It doesn't mean that wasn't my experience, but when I hear about the 
things other women have gone through, especially, you know, women of color and, you know, women who struggle with disabilities or, you know, the LGBTQ community. I mean, there's so many layers of diversity. Um, I just, it, it just, it's just been so eye-opening for me. And, and again, I'm just so grateful that people have trusted me with their stories and, um, and, and that's been just a privilege, Steve, to be, you know, to tell you the truth. It's been a, a, such a privilege. Um, I also, I always ask this of my speakers, the question you asked me, and I always get two different answers. One is that people think things are getting better, that they feel, especially after the social justice movement of 2020 and the pandemic and George Floyd and all those things kind of coming together and acting as a catalyst for change, people see um, that the highest levels of management are waking up and saying, okay, we have to do something. Even if we don't want to do something, our stakeholders are demanding it of us. So there is, I, I would say the majority of, of the people I speak to say they do see movement, whether it's coming from the heart or it's just behavioral, does it really matter in the end as long as it changes coming? I think that the, the stragglers will eventually come on board. Um, but I do think also we have a long way to go. And I think that a lot of people feel just because they talk about it, it means that they're, they're doing the right thing. And um, one thing I've learned because of all the things I know now, it's had a profound effect on my personal life because I can't show up for work and be an advocate for diversity, equity, and inclusion, and then live in the life I live my personal life and I can no longer adhere to hate the sin, love the sinner, which has led to many, many very uncomfortable conversations with people who used to be people in my life who are no longer in my life um, because I can't, I have to represent differently. So um, it's been- Let's just take a moment and go back to the things changing or not changing. So I know we were talking about this and you've heard me talk about it when I've moderated panels or talk, talked about it to you, um, and it's on, on a lot of these podcasts, but because we are talking about something, and even if we're gathering in a hotel or a virtual, a virtual ballroom, doesn't mean that things are getting better. So for example, mm -hmm. the one I gave you, um, one number that is actually going down, less women and people and, and diverse attorneys are going into litigation. So already first chair litigators was under 2% and it's gone down apparently, right? So, you know, people on the, the interwebs can, can check, can check, check that. But I, I believe that is true. And when you talk about less advantaged groups, that's even worse. So, so there is an example of a, a, a type of work that has the stereo, the male stereotype litigation, um, and I think we have to be very careful that talking about it and feeling good about it, especially people who come from privileged, privileged groups of society, that dinner party syndrome where people can theoretically solve all of the world's problems. You get this a lot with progressives, right? Um, sitting in a house, in a very expensive house and solving everything, but they don't actually do anything to create change. I think that's something that we have to be really conscious of. I couldn't agree more. And I, I one of the things I like about, the conferences that we do get emails. I know you get them too. And people actually detail to me about what they've gone and changed because of talking about it. I mean, obviously you have to talk about it first. You've got to, you've got to be aware before you can take action, but I agree with you. I think that a lot of people stop at the talking point. And I'd like to think that, you know, the way we're contributing is by pushing past that and, and calling, you know, inspiring people to actually take those next steps. Um, you know, and again, that's what I'm trying to model in my behavior, again, in my personal life and my professional life, that I'm not stopping at, okay, I showed up for work, I did this great thing, I talked a lot about diversity, and then I went home and, you know, sat around with my white friends, you know, talking about, you know, how unfair everything is now. <laughs> because, you know, a lot of, I've actually been accused by white people of hating white people. <laughs> I mean, that's crazy, right? I'm just nuts. So, so, so yeah, let, let's. So, what what we what we look to do at the at the conference is we look to challenge. So, for example, you know, um, we we say, you know, when it comes to the a mentoring or sponsorship topic, right? Um, we'll say if anyone is looking, you know, if you write down three people that you could mentor right now, 
who's someone that you could sponsor or ad- adversely will say at the conference, um, who would you like, you know, Nate, write down three people that you would like to try and find out if they, they would sponsor you, right. They would advocate for you in the back room. Um, and then we talk, you know, write those things down. And then when you leave, go, go make, you know, go try and figure out how you can do that. And we give tools. And so that is how we, we create action because change happens on an individual basis before it has to happen on a group basis. Right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, that's always reflected in the, in the talking points, which is we will, we do talk about institutional policies but we always bring it down to the individual. What can I do right now to foster change? Yeah. And sometimes it does seem overwhelming. How are we ever going to make change? Well, just don't think about it that way. Think about it about your world. What can you do in your world? And once you get going on that, even in that small little way, it builds on itself. So what, what was interesting to me and it was something you said, because, you know, I've had instances where when I was moderating panels, people would come up to me and say, I had no idea that people were struggling with this. Right. And so um, that, and, and, and I'll give you my take. Um, I believe it's, it's, it is one of the most profound forms of subjugation because what you do is you disenfranchise um, 50% over 50% of the population if you take in women and less, less advantaged groups and because they don't see other people like them being successful or doing what they maybe aspire to do or th- don't even understand that that's what they aspire to do. It causes, causes huge problems, but then the power structure disenfranchises. And so you divide and conquer, right? So from a very, you know, big picture, what, ha- what seems to be happening is, that, is I was just looking at this group and people didn't know that other people were struggling with the same thing. And that, you lose power with that, right? That's, you don't, once you understand that there's other people, you can, you can then try and coalesce, come together and do something about it. But that divide and conquer, whether, you know, I don't think it was done necessarily on purpose, but that's how power structures work. So for me, that was one of the most profound things I got out of it as a, as a, as a white male is watching people not know that someone sitting next to them was going through exactly the same thing. Well, it leads to another uh, topic that I've only recently started doing more research about, um, which is covering. And I know I've done it myself. When you feel other rather than, and I, I think now more and more we're encouraging people to show their colors. We're not, no longer are we advocating for being colorblind, but when, when I say show your colors, I don't necessarily mean the color of your skin, but who you really are. Do you have a disability? Do you have something going on in your life that's troubling you? Um, Are you, you know, what's your sexual orientation? I think people have, we've always just sort of by default try to blend in. You know, I know I've covered my Jewishness many times or I've covered my physical disabilities. You know, you don't know about some of them um, because we don't want to talk about it. We want to look like everybody else, feel like everybody else. And that's where we, allow the machine you know it's almost like we actually end up putting gas into that machine by not showing who we really are and 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 if we were we would know that other people were struggling too but we we put that cover on and i think that's part of the problem so again what can i do what can you do what can jeff do what can john or susan do well we don't have to wait for the higher ups or the whoever's in control to stop doing that. We can start really showing who we are and then we'll be aware, more aware, more aware of each other. So by being more aware of each other, by people not being more aware, and I think that has changed over the last few years. And I'm very proud that we've you know, been a small part of that within the legal community. Um, what, what else has come out from, from the events? What, what else have you picked up, picked up on? You know, I think one of the things I've picked up on is that, um, and I I don't want to sound like a Pollyanna, but that people really do want to help people, that people really do want to mentor and sponsor, for example, that people really do want to get involved, people in leadership positions. And, um, but again, to the original point, some people just aren't aware. And if they are aware, they don't know how to start. So, um, 
I, and, and maybe I'm looking at things in a, in a narrow way because who's coming to our events? People who are already buying in, people who are already believing in this message. But I, I mean, sometimes I find myself telling the in-house people, you know, when I explain about our model and the sponsors, well, I don't think we have one single sponsor that's only there for what they're going to get out of it. I think every single sponsor, at least I've ever spoken to, truly believes in this message, and that's why they want to be aligned with these summits. So, um, I, you know, I hope I don't sound too optimistic because I know that we have a long way to go. But I feel that the trend, especially with the, young, the younger generations coming up, I think that they're going to they're going to be coming in on their charging horses and they're demanding diversity. They're demanding that, you know, a, a culture of inclusion. They, you know, you know, you've seen the studies that they, they would rather take less money and work in a place where they're going to be in a wonderful environment with interesting people and not just the same old, same old. And I think that they're going to make, keep pushing forward and that change is coming. What what do you think? What what are some of the some of the for me? What what what's very interesting is the the the, the not seeing people like themselves in positions that they want to be in. That seems to cause you know huge. And I think that that is one of the things that unless you're you know, you, you know if you're in the you know the top of the power structure, you're not going to understand right that if if you don't see women, people of color in leadership positions, it makes a huge difference. And, you know, it's a theme that I've come up with. It's like that I talk about a lot is privilege gives you a confidence, right? And so one of the themes that we come up a lot is the um, self-advocacy, I think. It seems to be, you know, whether it's asking for a, a raise, asking for a different work environment, asking for a different type of flexible schedule, um, getting put on a new project, that lack of, of confidence because you're not coming from a place of privilege starts people off dis, you know, just a hugely disadvantaged. That's one of the things that we push for a lot, right? Whether it's through mentorship, sponsorship, encouraging people, giving, you know, was that something? I mean, that that's something I noticed big time at the conferences. Well, you know, when I talk about self-advocacy and when I do the panel, um, I mean, obviously, yes. People, I always say, we can. you can have all the mentors and sponsors in the world. You can, all the opportunities might fall your way, but if you're not going to advocate for yourself, nothing's going to happen. In the end, you have to be your own advocate. But Steve, I always take it back an extra step because I think the other, we skip a step. We're so anxious about the self-advocacy that a lot of us forget to really think about what are we advocating for? I know that was my experience. I got swept up in what was going to make other people happy instead of really sitting and deciding what was going to make me happy. And then I just went and advocated without thinking about what I was advocating for. And I, well, what do you mean by that? What do you mean? Give an example. Well, of that you know, I think that there's pressure on, on a lot of women now to, um, you know, get out there and, and this is the track. Okay. You're either going to become a partner. You're going to become a GC. You're going to do X, Y, and Z. And, and there's not a lot of room for creative thinking. And, and, and I think that the pandemic and has, this is one of the silver linings, because we've all been forced to take a step back and think about life in a new way. And I think that a lot of women, that's not necessarily what they want, but they go and advocate for it anyway, because that's what everybody else is doing, or that's what they were told that they should do. And I think that there's room for creativity and there's an opportunity to there are so many opportunities. It's not just do this or do that. And I find that, you know, it's that old, be careful what you wish for. I wish that people would be more aware of reflecting before they start running after what they want. And I also think if you really, really, really want what you want, you're going to get it as opposed to if you're running after something that deep down you really don't want, but it's more performative. Am I making sense? Yeah, it, it's come from it's come from the podcast, the interviewing a lot of people, um, mainly partners at law firms. But the sooner you know what you want, the quicker you can get. You know, it changes everything because now you have a target, you have a goal that you're going for, right? Um, but also, to be fair, if people are just trying to survive and get by, it makes it harder to know. You know, that you've got to get out of that cycle too, right? And so you've got to get to a place a place of a, of a little bit of abundance or confidence that things are going to be, um, kind of be okay. 
and I think that that makes it a huge difference. But the ability to self advocate or make it easy for people to advocate for themselves or others, I think, is something that has to change. And I think that's become very obvious from talking, you know, hearing people talk and the questions they ask at our conferences. Well, look, I think there's a there's, there's an opportunity here, and I'm going to use the word exploit to exploit the current atmosphere. I know from what we do and the people we speak to that there is a mad dash to get diverse talent in the door, whether it's the right talent and the right fit. I mean, I think we have to take it a step further and look at retention along with recruitment, but there's such a mad dash to fill up that pipeline. And I think that people who have been disenfranchised and underrepresented should take advantage of that. Um, I'm not going to name names. One of our speakers actually reached out to me after I believe it was either the Capitol Hill riots. It was one of these very traumatic events and said she had all these people calling her from her company and asking her if she was okay. You know, people she barely knows. And she goes <laughs> and offering her things. And she said, what do you think I should do? I said, well, listen, if everybody was suddenly calling me because they thought I might be upset about something that happened, you know, because of something Jewish and they were offering me things, I'd take them. I said, take the ch- take your opportunities. So she loved that. I, you know, she loved that. She laughed and she loved it. And I think that if people are pushing for that now, it's it's your time. It, it hasn't, and it's it's fair because many of the people who are now being uplifted have been pushed down for so long. Don't worry about it. Just do go for it. Take those those beautiful gems that are coming at you and and make use of them. And at the same time, do your due diligence to make sure that you're being put in a position to be successful. Because what's also happening is people are rushing to put diverse talent into positions and promote and, and be client facing or forward facing in terms of, you know, showing everyone they're diverse. But if you do not get the support or you do not believe that you, you know, that you are going to be given the full opportunity to be successful because success is a guaranteed, then you need to really, you know, challenge that, that the employer, the organization to set things up where you will succeed. Right. Because I think that becomes, it becomes really dangerous because if if people get put in a position to fail, that can make it much harder for others coming behind you. Absolutely. One hundred percent. Take a deep breath. You know, say yes to the opportunity if it's something you want, but make sure you're given, you know, that there's a strategy in place for success. So one of the things that we've come up and we've, we've talked about, and I think you even had this experience, is the difference between mentorship and sponsorship, right? Yeah. Um, and and the, one of the profound things that, you know, still to this day when we run events is the confusion between mentorship and sponsorship, right? Mentorship um, comes very easily, right? Collaboration, mentorship, right. having someone guide you, talk Informal. to you. Informal. Right? And then the idea, you know, it's kind of almost like informal coaching to someone you can go to. They may or may not have any vested interest in your success, right? And then sponsorship is having someone in the back room, whether you know it or not, saying, Robin Frank is the person we need to be putting on this. She's got, you know, we want to move her forward in the organization. And you may never know and understanding the difference between that, right? And, and I always joke, you know, sponsorship is, the, is the, the technical term for the old boys network. Right. It's what they do in the back room and talk and say, this is what's going to happen. Um, and I think that for me, that un- just understanding the difference between those two gives people power right there. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Sponsorship. You're using your political capital. You're asking somebody to. And they've definitely got skin in the game. The outcome, your outcome affects their outcome, ultimately. And. You know, where I saw the best presentation was Monica Howard, who is now actually the GC, the GC at Coca-Cola. She's presented a few years ago at our event in, in Atlanta and she spoke. I mean, it, it just blew everyone out of the water. She spoke so strategically about leveraging this relationship and doing this and moving up and having this person and, and, and figuring out, not even sometimes asking if this person was going to vouch for her and all of these things. And now she's the GC at Coca-Cola. And it was done in such a strategic in such a strategic, precise manner, but you need to know that you need to have sponsors in the room that are going to, and and you may not need to ask them and you've got to figure out how to, you know, all of that sort of stuff. So if leadership 
is something that you're or moving, you know, moving your career forward, that becomes really important. 100%. No one gets to a position like that without thinking about their strategy. It, it, that's not luck. That's, you know, a lot of hard work. I mean, and as we've talked about it, and I don't necessarily mean just hard work as in doing your job. It also means hard work in thinking about what your strategy is going to be to get ahead. Because as we know, merit alone is not enough. So putting hard work, doing and saying and asking questions that make you feel uncomfortable, that challenge yourself. Right. That's that's hard work. You know, I think a lot of very competent people can sit down and and do the hours and hours of work. But Mm -hmm. doing the things that we don't want to do or uncomfortable doing. um, And it's hard enough to ask for something. And when you are coming from a place of, uh, you know, you're coming from a place of weakness or you don't have the confidence to, to ask because you don't see anyone else doing that, that becomes harder, right? And so I'm going to just read out some stats that, are, you know, I think have become more and more profound. This is from um, American Express, and this is more for corporate workers, but um, I think these, these these stats, you know, give, give me your take on them. Um Generally, 70% of female corporate workers consider themselves high potential employees, but that number jumps to 86 if they have a mentor and 89% if they have a sponsor. They also found that 28% of women in corporations aspire to the C-suite, but that number, listen to this, jumps to 40% if they have a mentor and 50% if they have a sponsor. Finally, right, one third of women believe that reaching the C-suite is achievable, but that number again jumps. And to me, this is the big one, jumps to 49% if they have a sponsor and 61% if they have a, no, sorry, 49% if they have a mentor, 61% if they have a sponsor. I mean, those just that, that I, for me, the believing that they can do it, that someone can do it becomes, for me, is the most powerful one. Absolutely. And it also speaks to the necessity of women who have attained those positions to reach down the ladder and pull the women up. And we talk a lot about that at at our events. Um, You know, that's another topic that comes up. You know, a lot of people feel that uh, women in leadership tend to have this, well, no one helped me. I don't really think that's true. I think that there are women, definitely, there are good people and bad people all over the world, regardless of gender, race, and everything else. But um, I do think that there are a lot of women out there and men who um, are happy to do that. But again, on the other side of it, you you must ask. You must ask. You must open your mouth and ask. And at the same time, I would hope that people who see people struggling who might not be asking might push just a little harder to help that person to get to that place. Great. So just so we can just start kind of winding down, but he, I'm going to put a question out there. The, um, the topic... And, and, and set me straight, Robin, right? Uh-oh. The topic that, that makes me cringe, right? But that we feel the easiest every time we could put this topic on every single agenda, but I actually think perpetuates, in, in, you know, stereotypes that people believe about themselves is the work-life balance caregiver um, topic. But yet every single, we could run that topic at every single conference, right? And so... For me, it's a balance between what the reality is and what the the, the ideal or the utopian is. But for me, um, someone looking from the outside, I feel like it's a it's a stereotypical topic that doesn't get discussed at any other developments. You know, that's at gender neutral conferences. So, you know, w- well, what's your take on that topic? Well. As you are probably aware, I tried to evolve that topic to get away from that stereotype. I mean, you'll you'll you do know that it went from being a, a motherhood motherhood and career work life balance to parenthood and career to caregiving and career, acknowledging that just about anybody could actually be a caregiver, trying to pull everybody into that. And I've also tried very hard to get speakers on that panel who, are, who might even be single 
because self-care is part of caregiving. Or married and no children, Robin, right? Married with no children, married with children, single parent, like everybody. Some people are, are, are experiencing, you know, the sandwich generation, the elderly parents, the disabled spouse, who knows what. Um, so I, I think, I mean, at least I've tried on my end to make it more universal. But I also think that because of the pandemic and the remote work, the men have had an opportunity to see the reality of what it's like to be a homemaker and a professional person at the same time. So whereas I do, I, I do think there's a danger that that is a same old, same old, and it's been done a thousand times, and we all know the reality regardless of what anybody says, I do think that there has been room to evolve that topic. And I think it, it, it's happened. I, I've heard from many speakers who have said on that panel that it's been an eye opener for their husbands. And I've also, as you know, I've tried to get men on that panel and every now and then we get them. Um, but I think that whole thing is, is blowing up because of what happened. And also, also mm -hmm. flexible work arrangements have become a lot more commonplace. Um, there's a lot more understanding and acceptance of people who, and I'm saying people, not women, people who choose to be there for their kids, for doctor appointments, plays, this, that, and the other, and making up the work at different hours. And as one of our speakers famously said, don't parent in secret. And I think that people are starting to do that. Again, covering, they're not covering so much anymore. They're out loud and proud about the fact that they're not going to be able to do that meeting at 10 a.m. because, you know, they have to drop their kid off at school or whatever it might be, but I can do it at noon. Um, and I think that there's that's that's evolving actually. And then my other my other one is the the ROI of diversity. And so I, I believe you know that that language is very powerful. Um, and when we do we want diverse opinions? Absolutely. Do we want diverse viewpoints and different people looking at different um, different angles and from coming from different backgrounds. Absolutely. At the same time, we have to be careful that we, we aren't pandering or allowing, you know, allowing, you know, disadvantaged groups to be pandered to saying, let's, let's hear from the person of color. Let's hear from the woman because we want to have their, their diverse opinion um, as opposed to talking about the, you know, the ROI of diversity. If we're not, bringing people in from 100% of the population and only bringing in people who have socioeconomic leadership, you know, capabilities that we perceive are only white men, we are not creating and opening up the opportunity in the economy by not doing that, right? And so I think for me, I'd love to get your take on it because I get mixed responses to that. But for me, I think we have to be very careful about the language we use because when we talk about, you know, perspectives and things like that, it, I think it dilutes the real issue that we're only tapping 35 to 40% of the population at any given time. Well, any company that doesn't understand that we are now in a multicultural economy that is going to become more and more and more diverse um, there. And if they're only, if their think tank is only comprised of white men, they're certainly going to miss the mark on what the marketplace is demanding. And, and by the way, I, I, believe in the ROI, the DEI, the ROI of DEI. I mean, let's face it, companies have to be profitable. It's one thing to do the right thing. It's another thing to do the right thing and cause your company to go under because you're not generating a profit. Because, we're, you know, nonprofits are different than for-profit companies. For-profit companies exist to make money. But what a happy coincidence, or whatever you want to call it, that every study on the planet shows that diversity in improves increases profitability absolutely increases yeah, they, they go hand in hand and it doesn't take a genius to figure out why companies if companies don't reflect the marketplace they're not going to be profitable so if you're not getting the perspective of the people you're marketing to you're going in blind so how does that make well, you're relying on the stereotypes of what leadership is, right? What what uh, what a litigator is, what a CEO is, what a CFO, COO, GC. I mean, you name the job title, right? That's that's what it. You know, that's we're, we're battling. That's what unconscious bias is in many ways. It's, it's stereotypes, mm -hmm. right? And there are people who could do a better job, you know, than than the current 
status quo and it won't keep people down. This is the perception. It's not a zero-sum game, I believe. I believe when you open up economies, more opportunities get created, not less. It's not like, you know, uh, white men are then going to get pushed. It's just there's more opportunity because there's this energy, right? And and to compete in a global economy, we can't just be relying on um, white men to be leading leading the charge in terms of corporations, law firms, you know, Nothing stays the same in business. If if that were the case, we'd still be rotary. We'd still have rotary phones. I mean, the kind you, you got rid of yours. <laughs> you know it, it, that, and and that that sort of proves the point. If 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 people aren't willing to adapt to the way the economy is evolving and and where the culture is moving, they fall by the wayside. I just think that it's, it is, it's good business. Is it better if you feel that way as well? Of course, but we can't change hearts and minds. We can always, we can only change behavior. So what new topics and themes will, will come up in the four conferences? One of the panels I'm working on for, uh, the fall is on the cancel culture versus taking accountability and what that means, what that looks like, what the differences are. And on the cancel side is judgment. On the accountability side is um, allowing some grace, education, um, taking ownership, um, but they're fi- finding where the for- where forgiveness is appropriate so that we can move forward collectively. Um, and I do think that in the end, I'll take kindness over judgment any day. As we wrap up, what's a call to action for the group, for the people listening? What what's a, what what would you like people to take away from this? Oh, it's going to sound it's going to sound really childish, but just just be nice, be nice. <laughs> Is that, are you saying that to me, or are you saying that to me? Oh no, you! <laughs> I are you saying up. that to me, Robin? I'm giving up on you. No, just I I know it sounds you know again it sounds like fuddy duddy ish, but. Let kindness be your guide. If you're wondering which direction to go in or what you're going to say and do, be nice. <laughs> that sounds very mild, but with all this talk about self-advocacy and pushing forward. But um, again, I'll go back to my Judaism. One very learned Talmud scholar once said that um, when asked about what the most important thing in the Talmud was, and he said, these are the words that are most important. Be kind. Everything else is commentary. All right. I think that's a great place to end. Thank you for your time, Robin. Thank you for your generosity thank and you, everything Steve. you do for, for me and Centerforce. Well, thank you. I love, I love Centerforce and I love the work I do. So thanks for the opportunity. My pleasure.